Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Um, and we are continuing in our sermon series today, Living Like Jesus. And if you are here because you found us via the freeway sign, hopefully this is an opportunity for us as a church to put flesh to the things that we say because you can surround yourself with really good slogans, but if they don't actually get fleshed out in how we live and practical, how do we reflect on this life of Christ, which we claim is the model for living a full, human, beautifully good, loving existence out in the world. The slogans don't mean anything. So our slogan of learning to live and love like Jesus, we are focusing right now, and we're in week six or seven of this, and so we're continuing. And so if you're new here, my name is Ryan. I'm the teaching pastor, and we are going to be spending a lot of time today in Matthew chapter 8. Uh, but before we start, I want to share a story, and I got express permission, and I have to ask permission from my children to share a lot of the stories that I want to share, but I was granted this. Um, in 2015, I was, I was taking my family on our first trip to Yosemite. And I'm not sure if any of you have have crafted a trip or an experience that you wanted to take your family on where if everybody would just do it the way that I want them to do it, <laughs> the experience would have been beautiful. If everybody just played along and experienced it, if, if everybody could have just kept their cool we would have driven in and tunnel view would have opened up and they would have there would have been angelic choirs in the car and they would have had the hairs would stand up on their neck and it would be incredible. Um, and so I had crafted this whole experience in my head. And if everybody would have just played along, it would have gone great. So part of what I was hoping to do even before we got on the road to drive in, there's a lake called Mono Lake, and there's these really cool tufa towers, which is just like salt deposits that build up, and we used to see them all, all the time when I was a kid, and I pull in, and I'm like, I'm going to show them this really cool scientific thing, and I park in a parking lot that I didn't realize was a mile away from the place that we actually had to hike to. We're hiking with a child on our back because she had just been born. And so I'm, I'm hiking and I'm like, all right, how do I make a mile hike down to this thing that I guess has more nostalgia than actually cool something for them to participate in? And this whole time in my head, I'm like, okay, I now have to be the champion of like this trip. I have to make it happen. I have to make it fun. And I don't know if you've ever, as a parent or as a person who's planned a trip for multiple people, you feel like, okay, I now have to sort of be the energy here. I have to make this happen. And there are bugs everywhere. And we get to the side of this lake. And I realize that the towers are on the other side of the lake. And not only that, there's a parking lot 200 feet from where we just walked to that had I continued up the road a bit. And so I can 
I can sense a bit of like dad's really screwing us over here in this trip. I can sense that no one's saying it, but I'm just kind of like feeling it rise up. And so I'm like, okay, well, at least we can go to the park and, and it'll just take them over. And so we're driving and I'm in the front and I have just, I just have beautiful, I'm seeing the trees and the forest and it's beautiful. And I'm a photographer. So I'm like pulling over and taking pictures, which I realize is way more fun for me than it is for them. But then I'm, I'm starting to hear this thing that, uh, it, that comes from the back seat of cars on long trips, which is a lot of complaining happening. A lot of, I'm cold. Are we there? What's happening? Like, I, I, this isn't, I'm not having a good time. Lexi is starting to have a, she's starting to get hot in the car and she's wearing a hoodie. And she's like, I just need to take, she's like, can we pull over? And I'm like, I, the, the magic is a couple miles ahead. Can everybody just play along? And I'm starting to recognize my temperatures, like, rising. I'm getting more and more upset. I'm like, you're, you're ruining the magic for everybody in the world right now. Like, this is going to be a good moment if you can just play it cool. And then she, I'm like, can you just take your hoodie off while we're driving? It's, it's not that hard. And so I think it isn't that hard, but I look in the rear view mirror and I see her like this because her sweatshirt had gotten tangled and her arm was like tied. And at that point I was like, trip's canceled. Everyone, we're going home. I was so upset. I was so mad that my expectations for how this trip could have turned out was so perfect if everybody would have just done it the way that I hoped. And I had so much disappointment because I had not considered the people that I was with as I was making this trip. I had not considered, I did not have the muscle memory of being a parent long enough to know that that's part of what you have to plan for. Part of what you have to plan for is things not going the way that you expect. And if you plan something without that in mind, you end up with a lot of disappointment. And so today, as we look towards this text, we'll see how often that comes up as we look at the life of Jesus. And I had this really fancy title called Subverting Expectations that the life of Christ was constantly taking people's expectations and subverting them. And I was like, that's a cool title. But in reality, it's disappointment. That Jesus is disappointing in a lot of ways. And I want to talk about that because that's a reality that we see in the text. That's a reality that we sometimes experience. What is the disappointment that we feel about how we thought our faith would play out? What is the disappointment that we feel when sometimes we want Jesus to be big and he goes small? Or sometimes when we want him to go small and he goes big? When we have an expectation that he'll heal the same way he healed before and he refuses to? When he does amazing things and tells people to be quiet about it when he heals people that we would rather him not heal. When he cares for people that we would rather him not care for when he's not hating the people we hate. What do we do with that? How do we see it? 
So I want to start off by reading John 1, verse 9 through 12. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This is a beautiful blessing that we all get to reflect on and take in and be grateful of because we are a part of that to all who receive him. That offer is so big in a time where so many of us want to keep it small. It says to all who received him, to all who believed in his name. And I want to pay attention to a part of that where it says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And last week, Mary shared this idea about risking. Risking that we would believe our identity in him. And I want to share, as I was preparing for this message, I was like, okay, I don't have like one particular area where I would say you could really sense that a disappointment, but I was like, I know that it sort of exists in periods throughout the entire gospel. So I just started from the very top. I was like, all right, I'm just going to read through Matthew and just kind of point out, like, here are some areas that I see. And it starts off with this lineage. It starts off with saying, here is the way that this person named Christ, this person named Yeshua comes to us. And it lays out, and there are very particular people for whom they would actually lay out a, a lineage for. People who were powerful, people who were influential. You would only state a person's lineage because they had a right to some claim. And you had to sort of prove that that claim was proven by their line. And so they start talking about this person is the Messiah that we've been hoping for. And so all of this sudden, you can see from the very start, they're trying to make this claim that this long-awaited hope, this beautiful trip to Yosemite that we've been waiting for, and everybody just needs to play along with the rules I've created in my head for how this is supposed to look, is here. And then immediately... One of the things that we don't often talk about, because there's not a lot of good containers for it, but there's this slaughter of babies that happens because of his birth right afterwards. We don't like talking about it because it's, yeah, how, how do you hold this thing where all of a sudden he had caused so much threat to the powers that, they, that Herod called for the death of the firstborn's and so we have immediately pain and grief, disappointment, frustration, anger, injustice because of his presence. What do we do with that? When the crowds wanted an oversimplified answer, when he talks about 
you have to be reborn. And he's talking to Nick Demas, and he and he brings up this really complicated metaphor. And and everyone's like, this is a very difficult teaching. And he had the ability to clarify it for people and tie it up and make sure that people knew. He said, well, the spirit is like the wind. It will go where it wants. When he had an opportunity to clear things up, he would leave them with more questions. And if you read the gospel of Mark, you'll see over and over again how Jesus is presented with a very clear, like, hey, you could tie this up really easily right here just by answering this question, doing this thing, and he would constantly leave them with more questions. There were, um, there, there's a very famous story in uh, John X where, where he says that unless you eat my flesh and drink of my blood, and he starts talking in this way, and after it says that the crowds left, that he was accumulating these crowds. And rather than taking that moment to simplify it and make it clear, make it obvious to state something that actually would take this, like, this growing group of people that were interested in what he was up to, he, he used that moment to split it, to say something really tough. And so I want to look at um, this upcoming part because as I read through Matthew, I got to chapter 4, and it was right after Mary's message last week um, where he was baptized in, in the devs ends and, and it says, um, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he is, he is tempted. And then after that in uh, Matthew 4, verse 12, it says, when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he returned to, to, to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum. And I don't know why, but I got obsessive this past week about why is it why did he go to Capernaum? What's the purpose of this? And I want to show a picture. So I started to do sort of a deeper dive on this place. There should be a picture of Capernaum in there. So that's Capernaum. When I think of Jesus' ministry on earth, I imagine him roaming through these sprawling places where there's a chance that people hadn't heard of him, where he was sort of picking these particular pockets and doing these things where the word might spread slowly. I'm thinking about him sort of moving around in much larger places. And I think the picture that I have in my head is more like maybe Jerusalem, which is a much larger capital. But he chose as his home base this place that is roughly the size of Poly High. With about a third of the people as Poly High. About 1,000 to 1,500 people. So as a kid from a small town, 
I know that he has the small town thing happening where everybody knows everyone's everything. Right? Like you can't hide. You can't really keep a story secret because people can hear you talking on the other side of town. So there's not a lot of not knowing what's happening here. And I think to myself, when he takes the crowds up on a hill and it says that he went up to a mountain, just a heads up, there's no mountains in this area. There's a hill that's like a hundred feet higher and he takes them up there and he starts doing the sermon on the mountain. He goes, blessed are the peacemakers. And I think there's a strategic reason that he's up on this hill overlooking this humble, small town, this place where he had just chosen to commit to a small group of people to do the majority of his ministry here. And it's in that context that we get through this Ermin on the Mount, and then it wraps up, and I'm going to read through Matthew chapter 8, because I think that there's just a strategic disappointment one after the other here, where we see what he is up to, and when you get the sense that he has just called people to follow him, that everybody would have known are the ones not spending time in this synagogue. They're the ones who had been told that you are not qualified to become a disciple. Jesus, the one rumored of, does not go home to Nazareth where he had spent his entire childhood, nor does he go to Jerusalem where most people would think a really strong, powerful rabbi would spend his time, he goes smaller again. And he goes to this tiny fishing town here. And then he preaches these sermon on the mountain. It says in chapter 8, it says, when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Next, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. And we've heard this story before it says my servant lies at home paralyzed and is in terrible suffering now a little context the centurion was the commander of about 80 people the servant that he would have been talking about would have been one of the people that would have been considered the oppressors and so we have this moment here where jesus is taking an opportunity to not just offer healing, but to actually commend the faith of the centurion. Next, this is verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and he got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our 
infirmities and carried our diseases. And then he goes on and he sees these crowds, right? He sees that all of a sudden he has an opportunity to leverage his position to go big again and offer them, okay, this is a movement that I want to start. I want to get people, I want to attract them. I want to get them to do my, to, to bring the kingdom on earth. And I could see the strategic part of him thinking, this is great. Crowds are starting to form. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he gave over to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And sometimes I think he sees he sees the crowds and he goes, all right, I need to go somewhere else. And people are like, he's going to the other side of the lake. You can see where he's headed and they just walk along the shore and they're like, we're just going to keep following him wherever he goes. I will follow you wherever you go. And he says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Whatever security you think you will get from following me, be sure that I'm not offering that. I'm not offering you the, the comforts that you may have come to me hoping for. This is, it is tough. This road that you will find yourself on does not end on a throne, it ends on a cross. This road is not one of upward mobility. It's one that all of, all of a sudden questions will be asked. How do we become great? You, you serve. And he knows that there are people here who have the, the perfect trip imagined in their head. And he knows that he has to come and address that. And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And then we have the, the well-known story of the disciples in the boat. Jesus calms the water, but not only that, he rebukes their lack of faith. So right after commending the faith of the centurion, he rebukes the faith of the ones who are following him, commends the faith of uh, the one who there was a lot of reason for anger and actually corrects the faith of those following him. And then he... And then in verse 28 says, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Adarines, two demon-possessed men come from the tombs to me, and they were so violent that no one could pass that way. When you do, uh, it says, what you do, what do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some a distance from them, a large herd of pigs was eating. The demons begged Jesus, if you, if, you, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down to the steep bank and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed 
Amen. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave. Now, this is a very weird story. There's not a lot of like, yeah, don't don't we all relate to this, right? How I I just cast a couple demons into some pigs earlier this this morning. Crazy. But um when we realize what's happening here is that he is calling out the eighth in the smallest places that we see it to be impossible. And he's challenging it in the places where it would seem the most obvious. And he was willing to cast out the demons of two people that this town had found a way to handle. They've found like, okay, you put them over here. We're just going to keep them away. And he sends these demons into these pigs. And this is an agricultural community. This was their income that just ran off the cliff. And they're like, I love what you're up to here. Fantastic work. Can you go do it somewhere else? <laughs> Can you please take these miracles other places? And I want to read a quote that I read this week because this is all in the context of Lent also, us preparing our hearts for this, this open-eyed entry into the costly call to take up our cross. That so often our faith wants to look away and it wants to find other things that we can fill into that reality that we are called to take up our cross to follow him and that Jesus is constantly taking people's expectations that he would come and he would he would overpower or that he would come and he would only pay attention to this one thing. And, and he comes and he says, I'm going to blow all that up. There, there'll be times where you want to control me and you want to tell me how I'm supposed to act and I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to touch, I'm going to touch the people that you're telling me that I'm not supposed to touch. The heroes of my stories will be the enemies in yours. And how, how do we hold that? What is that meant to do for us? Because I think that rather than taking this and saying, okay, in our faith, how are we meant to be more disappointing? That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying, how do we reflect on what he was up to? What is the kingdom that he's calling us into? And how do we, how do we hold with the curiosity? Because Jesus is, necessarily and consistently disappointing if we be, believe he is accountable to my expectations or demands or if I forget that in his own life, Christ experienced abandonment, pain, disappointment. Mark 3.21 is this picture where he's, he's, he's teaching people and his family comes to him and, and they try and shut him up and they say, he's out of his mind. The people closest to him did not get it. John chapter one, what we just read, it said, he came to his own and his own did, his own did not receive him. His family didn't get it. In his time of greatest need his closest friends fell asleep on him not only is there a disappointment in jesus there is a 
a disappointment of Jesus. And it's not his disappointment in you. It's that this journey of trying to love, trying to actually live in, in uh, subversive countercultural ways is painful, even for the son. Even for Christ, it was painful. For those closest to him that did not understand, he told people to not fight back, but to pace Azer. There's so many examples. That was just from me reading through Matthew chapter 8 and saying all of these people that came with the expectation that, that he would come and he would address them and that he would answer all their questions were left wanting, but not just wanting, but curious. And I think that it's a good re reminder that all in all cases, the ones who were always closest to figuring out what he was up to were the ones most curious. The ones most curious are the ones that he says, you're close. You're the ones closest. The ones asking questions. The ones in pain. The ones on the outside. The ones not sure. He said, you are the closest. This is a quote. It says, Lent is a slow walk through the fields of disappointment. Learning to avoid the potholes of despair and resentment, developing muscle memory faithfulness, drawn by the love of a God to good, even when it appears not to be working. In a lot of instances, God is both bigger and smaller than our expectations. So I think that in our dis we should come away and say, have, have we made room to, to just be honest? Have we read things, things like Psalm chapter 6 or Ecclesiastes chapter 2 where it says, everything's meaningless. Psalm chapter 6 is like, Lord, where are you in my, in my despair? How long? Oh, Lord, how long? And we see that refrain over and over again. And I wonder if there's some trick, if there's something that we need to tap into that actually calls out and says plainly, Lord, where are you in this? Because I've done the things I'm supposed to do. I've prayed the prayers. I've read the things. I've tried to do it. And it seems like it's not working out. Have we made room to actually be honest with our disappointments? Have we named our disappointments? Have we found that where we wanted a God to go big and overpower and just sort everything out that, he, that it seems like he's asking, he's going small and calling us to pay attention to the small things? Have we tried to box him in and tried to keep him into this one way that we thought he would handle everything, but we find out he's much bigger than that? And also, have we paid attention to the fact that Christ himself 
has the experience of saying, Lord, why have you forsaken me? The forsaken, and this is something that our Savior experienced too. So in all of those places, we have to know that expressing our disappointments and knowing that they exist and calling it out is not this crisis. It could come along with a crisis of faith, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your faith is weak. It means that you are presenting your full humanity to the reality of the moment. And Christ himself made himself available for that too. And I think that if he gave, if Christ gave himself a mission to talk plainly about his own abandonment, I think we should too. Where are those places that we have a longing? Because our disappointments are actually reflective and they actually can clue us into what we long for. When we talk about how things aren't going the way that we would alike, what is it that, they're, that we are longing for? And how might those longings actually draw us closer to each other, which is why I believe that we're supposed to do this in community. Because then when people start sharing their disappointments, all, all of a sudden there's a thread that's poking through all of it that, that goes, oh, you have a, a longing for this same thing that I have. That we both long for that. And how can we actually partner up, not in our despair, but in the longings that our despair opens up? How can we partner in that? And I think that that means that we need to make room. And we have to become better as a community, better as a culture to make room, to not be so terrified about talking about our disappointments. We have to make room for that. We're not good at that because we we lend ourselves to despair so quickly, which is why people are constantly patching themselves up with enter, entertainment because we have, we have such little capacity to be honest about the fact that things aren't going the way that we had hoped. And that may not be true of you, and if so, please lend me some of your energy. <laughs> Let me have some of your happiness. I'll, I'll take it all. But I think that at some points, we've all hit that place of saying, like, I'm doing everything I can, and it's not going the way I had hoped. And we don't talk about it openly. Because it's not, it's not, people usually, you start to get dinner and invites less and less if all of a sudden all you're ever talking about is your disappointments. But I think that we have to make room to hear each other. Because if we don't, I think when we swallow our disappointments, we also swallow our longings. And I don't want to be a part of a community where people have to swallow either because those are both the, full, the fullness of our humanity that is not just a part of us as fallen people, but it was also seen in the life of Christ and the people who followed him the most closely, the most faithful to him also had deep disappointments. It's okay. We can talk about it. Hopefully it opens up pockets of our hearts that say like, we all long for the same stuff, but we feel the pain of it not happening in very separate ways. 
And I hope that that would draw us closer to each other and it would also draw us closer to Christ. Let's close in prayer. Um, and I'm going to invite whoever's serving communion. In our community every week, uh, we take communion and we offer that to anybody that would like. We also do the uh, bitter herbs. And you'll hear it said, this is the bitterness of sin and death. And I would encourage you that if, um, if that's a barrier for you to come to the table, you don't have to take that. And if you want to ask more questions about why we do uh, communion every week or why we do bitter herbs, I'd be happy to answer. And you could ask any of the pastors here also. Um, so yeah, we will get up um, whenever you would like to, and we'll take communion as we close in worship. And then we have an announcement at the end. But let me close us in prayers as well. Lord, would you help us to 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 find you in the midst of our disappointments that we would offer them to you that Lord you would show us how to navigate them without judgment so that we would not be pulled into despair or hopeless but Lord, even in our grieving that we would do it in a way that still is hopeful or would you show us how um, to do it well, to be honest about the places where um, things aren't going the way that we expect and we thank you because Lord, that reveals to us that you are so much better than we could ever imagine. Lord, Thank you that you you know what is right and how to move forward in this world. And so, Lord, would we offer our expectations to you and say, Lord, would you show us how to be your people? Would you show us how to love well, how to be curious? Would you show us how to be open-handed with with how we expect things to go so that you could inform us and so that we could be people who could answer the who could answer the call to follow show us how to follow well and we pray these things in your name amen